Welcome back to The Joseph Cox Show. First of all, thank you to everybody who sent your well wishes to me. I am doing much better. I have two working eyes and two working ears, which is a big step up from the last couple of weeks. Anyway, this week has, for me, been another very busy week. So I'm essentially going to go through the Parsha sequentially, uh, building on work that I've done before. I think this approach works well in this Parsha because really we're telling a story through the offerings, a story of a developing relationship, as we'll get to when we wrap up everything at the end of this podcast. There's a lot of symbolism in this Parsha, and there are a few overarching concepts, and I think they'll be teased out naturally, and it'll come through well. I do want to start with one general placeholder. At this point in the Chumash, the Mishkan has been built. There's a physical representation of God dwelling within the people, and God's cloud, Hashem's cloud, has descended onto the Mishkan. We have a static reality of our divine relationship, but we don't have much in the way of ongoing action. The relationship isn't a living one. To put it in accounting terms, we have a balance statement, but not a statement of cash flows or income. In terms of a relationship, it is like a legal marriage without the parties actually having ongoing interactions. So we need a way to relate to God. We need a way to use the Mishkan as more than a static demonstration of the divine relationship as it stood shortly after the Exodus. Yes, that relationship is a starting point, as we are reminded regularly, but the ongoing relationship is expressed and built through the offerings, through the Korbanot. Before we get into the Korbanot themselves, there's a standard question people ask about the animal offerings. Namely, will they continue with the third temple? For me, the answer is clear. Yes. On the one hand, I don't think animal sacrifices are, bar are barbaric. We kill roughly 77 billion animals a year for meat. We buy a burger as we're on our way to work, and we eat it with one hand while steering our car with the other. And we buy meat that is half the cost, ignoring factory farming conditions in the process. We have very little appreciation of the life lived and given up to provide us with meat. I'm not suggesting we should be vegetarians or the people who benefit from meat-based protein should be priced out of the ability to get it. I'm suggesting that those who suggest an offering in which we are painfully aware of the sacrifice is not so barbaric and antiquated. Instead of thinking of the animals as a shrink-wrapped shrink bit of plastic on a butcher's shelf or on a supermarket shelf, we're actually having a relationship with the creature itself. As painful as it is to see the creature be sacrificed, that is a far more humane and less barbaric practice than just distancing ourselves from the sacrifice itself. In addition, of course, an animal brought as an offering serves a higher purpose than one simply eaten because you preferred it to a glass of milk that day. An offering builds a relationship with God. It serves the greatest possible spiritual purpose. The very fact that the animal is not completely consumed or is not consumed at all is an acknowledgement on our part that the animal can be something more than just physical. It can do more than just feed our bodies. It can build a spiritual bridge. I know this is hard for us to accept. As regular people, we see loss in animal sacrifice. It is why this Torah reading, which starts with the words, when any man of you brings an offering, doesn't use the word holy for any of the animal sacrifices. It is from the everyman perspective. And the everyman sees destruction in animal sacrifice. Instead, the word holy is used only for the mincha grain offering that is eaten by the Kohen. For the everyman, there is loss in animal sacrifice or even in a burnt grain offering. Nonetheless, the next Torah reading, which is from the Kohen's perspective, uses the word holy everywhere. 
Because rather than just being slaughtered, the animal is being dedicated to the relationship with God. Like God's work during the six days, it is being completed and coming to holiness. Okay, let's jump into a step-by-step review of the symbolism of this reading. Let's start with the second verse. We read, when any man of you brings an offering. The word used for man, the one bringing the offering, is Adam. Contrast with the start of the next Parsha, where it says, command Aaron and his sons, saying, this is the law of the burnt offering. On the one hand, our Adam in this Parsha chooses to bring an offering, while Aaron and his sons are commanded. As we've covered before, the Kohanim are supposed to lack the freedom of normal people. They are pass-throughs. On the other hand, as we've discussed before, this term lets us know that the Parsha is from the normal person's perspective and not the Kohan's. Of course, when people read this, they make comparisons to the first Adam, Adam Harishon, in the Garden of Eden. But there's really more of a con- contrast at play here. We are told to bring our flocks and we're forbidden from bringing honey or fruit. So what would Adam Harishon have brought? He had no domesticated animals, no grain, no oil. He had ample fruit and probably date honey, but they're forbidden. He made nothing, and thus he had nothing to offer. The use of the word Adam reminds us how important it is to grow beyond the world Adam Harishon initially occupied. We might want to be in Gan Eden, but a Gan Eden in which we imitate God the Creator. A Gan Eden better than the one that we lived in initially. As we step into the reading, the Olah, or elevation offering, is the first type of offering. Burnt offering is a standard translation. The obvious connection between the words Olah to rise and a burnt offering is that smoke rises and is thus elevated. But other offerings go up in smoke too and aren't called Olah. To understand Olah, we must look at the first Olah offering. At the Akedah, Hashem commands Avraham, take your son and offer him as an Olah. At the end of that episode, Hashem says, you have not withheld your son. In Olah, an Olah offering is a gift to Hashem. It isn't a classic conversion of the physical to a spiritual, but an actual transfer to God. As we'll see shortly, this defines the animals that can be used. Of those animals, the male cow's procedure is distinct. It is explicitly associated with atonement. It must be given willingly, and for it, Aaron gives fire on the altar. The other offerings seem to use pre-existing fire. Why is this cow distinct? I believe it is because a male sheep or a goat, remember these are all male offerings for the old offering, has a limited future value. They might grow some wool, but their capability to sire some little sheep or goats can easily be replaced by having another sheep or goat do double duty. However, a male cow can work. Burning a perfect male cow destroys future productivity. We use them for planting. This destruction mandates atonement. At the same time, willingly accepting the loss of potential to enable the greater gift is a magnificent and trusting act. It merits its distinct fire. The Kohen has to kindle this fire, essentially providing a special and distinct spiritual energy just for this animal offering. But the real keys unlocked by the Ola offering have to do with the birds. We only sacrifice doves of one stripe or another. Why doves? or pigeons, and not chickens or ducks. Well, here's a fascinating natural world fact. Of all birds, doves share a distinct trait with flamingos and a few types of penguins. These three kinds of birds are the only birds that can produce a form of milk for their young. It is produced by their crops, and it comes out of their beaks. Doves are the only kosher birds that do this. This 
is why they alone can be offered in the Mishkan. But why is milk important? We know it comes up time and again. We can't eat a kid in his mother's milk, and Israel is the land of milk and honey. Milk represents the body's ongoing physiological dedication to continue generations, even after birth. It is a perfect physical creation dedicated to timelessness. In other words, it is a physiological representation of Kedusha, of holiness itself. Those who give milk have holiness built into them, as they have a physiological connection to establishing the future. Remember, we're converting the physical into the spiritual. Milk is thus the defining aspect of an animal that can be sacrificed. Using this model, mixing milk with the meat of a child is a disgusting rejection of this holy capability, and a land of milk and honey is one in which we enjoy both our Kedusha-enabling fuels, the milk that's long-term, and Hashem's blessings, the energy of the here and now. It is a land of awesome, holy capability. The birds reinforce another key concept. It is very hard to tell male and female doves apart. When we offer doves as an Ola offering, we remove their milk-producing crops and their innards. Essentially, we remove their female aspects. We make them male. Generally, the text is clear. The animal Ola offerings must be male as a char. But how is maleness connected to a transfer offering? Interestingly, the root of the word for male, zahar, also means memory, zocher. So why is the male connected to memory? And what does it have to do with these offerings? If we're looking for a memory connection, DNA wouldn't seem to count. After all, when making children, women contribute more than half of DNA. There's no distinct male memory here. In addition, women can carry tradition forward just as well as men can. There's no special male memory function there either. It's not cultural reality. As I see it, the distinction has to do with procreative roles. And hold off on the offense for a few minutes while I explain. On a basic biological level, the male can make the decision to procreate and the female cannot. Zachor represents positive reproductive will. Generations continue because of zachar, of maleness, and that enables long-term zocher, remembrance. This is why the Brit Mila, the circumcision, applies to men and firstborn males are dedicated to Hashem. Women, on the other hand, can actualize the next generation. The relationship between will and actualization can be captured in two Hebrew words. Adam, the word for man, is masculine. Man can plant crops, or woman in this case, it's a broad term for the humankind. But Adama, the word for earth, which yields crops, is feminine. The man, or mankind, chooses to plant, but only the feminine earth can yield crops. When God acts willfully, he is Elohim, the male collection of physical powers, of will. But when God rests in the Mishkan, she is the Shekhinah, actualizing the spiritual reality in response to our willful offerings. This isn't about personalities or people. We all know plenty of willful women and actualizing men. This is just about biological roles. Of course, with birth control, women can take on a very strong form of negative zahor, the ability to choose not to be impregnated. Remember, the ability of a male to be to impregnate a woman if, if rape is involved doesn't involve her consent whatsoever, except, of course, nowadays she can cancel that. The positive side of the equation of choosing to be impregnated still requires a male contribution somewhere along the lines. So coming back to our offering, the Olah is a reflection of our will to connect to Hashem, and that's why it's male. The second kind of offering is a mincha offering. Yaakov offers a mincha to Esav and a mincha to the man in Egypt. The mincha is a gift that aims to appease or to influence. 
This might be why it is exclusively grain. The consumption, well, grain plus add-ons, it doesn't have animals. The consumption of animal life is an inappropriate way to try to influence God. The desire to influence may be one reason why Hashem was dissatisfied with Cain's mincha offering. The mincha offering is fine flour, oil, and frankincense. We grew and then processed the flour using hand mills and intense physical exertion in ancient times. It represents labor. The oil is extracted through crushing and then repeated processes of purification, settling, and skimming. And while the frankincense is a natural product, as an incense, it symbolizes a certain emotion. Of course, we must trade to get it. It comes from trees in southern Arabia, so it requires interaction. We thus see exertion, purification, and emotion as three ingredients in the offering of attempted influencing. But there is one more fun thing about frankincense. It is called al-luban in Arabic. Forgive my pronunciation, which I'm sure is absolutely wrong. However, this is the same shorish used in the Hebrew, lavona. In Hebrew, the word means that which is white, although frankincense isn't terribly white. In Arabic, it means that which comes from milking, as in milking the tree. This ties in again to the idea of milk as holiness. The frankincense, seen in this way, is holy emotion. The Torah says that mincha offerings may not be leavened or honey or fruit. Fruit, leavened breads, and date honey are products completed by non-human intervention. They are not our fruits, and so they can't form our sacrifice. Salt, on the other hand, is a preservative and is required for mincha offerings, which connects nicely to the concept of offerings being far from loss and destruction, of offerings being timeless and holy. The verse goes further and says specifically that our influence offerings must contain salt because of a mysterious malach brit elokecha, a salty covenant of your God. There is no salt covenant in the text. If we read salty is preserved, we might read the preserved covenant of your God. Our influence offerings must have salt with them to remind us that we can bring offerings to the Mishkan only because our breach has been preserved. In other words, Hashem did not destroy us after the sin of the calf. We have a tiny mention of the mincha of first grains. They are not processed. By not processing them, they represent our recognition of Hashem's gift of material prosperity rather than our own efforts. We see this again later with the offerings in Shavuot where we do bring leavened bread and we do bring fruit because we're actually recognizing Hashem's gifts to us rather than making a gift to Him. The third major category of offerings is Zevach Shlamim. With the idea that a Mizbeach, an altar, is a converter from the physical to the spiritual, the Zevach Shlamim represents complete conversion. Shalem, Shalom means peace but also completion. By placing ourselves in these animals, leaning our hands on them, we are in a way completely converted. This offering, unlike Mincha and Olah, didn't exist prior to the laws of Parshat Mishpatim. It represents a very close relationship to God, which cannot occur outside of the context of our being Mamlechet Goanim and Agoy Kadosh. The laws of Parshat Mishpatim represent how we become Mamlechet Goanim and Agoy Kadosh. The Zevach Shlamim can be male or female. The complete conversion is not only an offering of male will, Zachor. Distinction and actualization are other paths towards this. Somehow, this physiological production of the female seems to be excluded from the lost potential associated with the external mankind-serving labor of the male. As part of this offering, we learn that all chelev is to Hashem. Chelev is visceral fat, the semi-fluid fat in our abdominal cavity. We first see mention of these fats in Hevel's and Abel's gift to Hashem. Chelev comes from the same root as chalav, as milk. Chelev, like chalav, is a perfect precursor to Kedusha. 
Without chalev, an animal would die because it wouldn't be able to get through emergency situations. Chalev is the ultimate backstop against risk to the animal's life. The value of the timeless chalav is in the future and outside the animal, but the risk-reducing chalav is part of the animal itself and thus the core of its offering. The chalav is about the species, the chalav is about the individual. This, I believe, is why the chalav is referred to as lechem isheh, firebread for Hashem. The bread for a heavenly fire is that which feeds it, this, perfectly perfect, this perfected physical product dedicated to an existence protected from risk. With the Zevach Shlamim, the offering of a cow is once again distinct. Aaron's descendants bring it, its male and female allowances are individually called out, its choice components are not called Lechemisha, firebread, and it is offered on top of the Yoleh. The ultimate production of the cow is its future labor rather than its intrinsic being. Because of this, it merits sacrifice by more prominent Kohanim, and its internal fats aren't as critical a product, thus no Lechemisha. This future potential can't be completely converted because it does not yet exist. So it is associated with the Olah, even when it is a Zevach Shlamim offering. When a lamb is offered, it is not called a pleasing fragrance, and the fats of its tail are singled out. Although it isn't clear what is burned, nobody likes the smell of burning wool. Hint, it stinks, which might explain the lack of pleasing fragrance. As to the tail fats, there is evidence that sheep in the ancient Middle East were quite possibly bred for extra fat tails. The goat, the next option, is distinct it is in that it is not explicitly called a complete conversion offering. It says, from it, not from the Zevach Shlamim. Why isn't the goat explicitly a complete conversion? Goats have a remarkably independent intelligence. It shows itself in the testing of enclosures. This might be the reason why they are used to represent the children of Israel with Azazel and Avraham's dark breed. I even used the goat as my villain in one of my children's books, Grobar and the Mind Control Potion. Their intelligence and good nature made one an unlikely player for the part of a villain. There is a loss, even a spiritual loss, when a goat is sacrificed. They cannot be completely converted. The next offering type is the chet, or sin offering. While the Zevach Shlamim was introduced prior to the Mishkan, the sin offering only exists in the context of the Mishkan. Only with the Mishkan can sin, a destructive act as defined in Breshit, be repaired by giving to Hashem. The positive cycle of Kedusha can be built even on sin. In that way, the sin offering reflects the construction of the Mishkan itself. We sinned against Hashem with a calf, but repaired that sin through the positive act of construction. In the unintentional sin offering, both the Kohens and the nation's bull called a par, not a bakar, represent a generic national identity. If the Kohanim sin, there is a loss to Jewish distinction. The nation uses a young bull, which is less restrained, to represent a people without the stability of the Kohanim. A leader uses a male goat, which consistently represents the Jewish people. The people are damaged by the leader's sins. In a way, the leader's sin represents a misguiding of the people's will. Finally, individual people use female goats or sheep for their unintended sins. Sheep and goats both represent a form of independence. Goats challenge enclosures and rules. And shepherds, like Yaakov, are the most mobile and independent of people. Offering these animals is offering up one's independence or rebelliousness. A Kohen, or a leader of the people as a whole, might willfully cover or protect against their sins through an offering. In that way, their sin offering can be willful and male. But the individual doesn't seem to have this option. They must bring this offering. This is not a willing offering, and I believe that it is reinforced by giving only female animals. In all the unintentional sin offerings, choice parts are burned, but the rest is disposed of outside the camp. 
The choice parts are the kidneys, liver, and fats, and they have distinct representation. The kidneys and liver, among other functions, protect against toxins in the blood and clean out dead cells. They ensure a physiological form of tahor, of purity, in the connective life force of blood. There is one more item listed, though, and it is sometimes translated as a diaphragm and sometimes as a lobe. It is described as being above the liver. I don't really know what it is. Some commentaries refer to a call above the liver, some call it a diaphragm. The actual organ or piece would influence its symbolic meaning, so if anybody can edumate me, I can try and piece it together. The root of the word, though, yoter, is used to mean something left over or remaining. If I were to reverse engineer a function for this part of the animal, it would go like this. There's purity in the kidneys and liver, there's holiness in the fats. So what's missing? An offering has to be pure and connected to timelessness, but it also has to be dedicated and it has to be distinct, has to be made distinct. We need to make the effort. If this is a diaphragm, it separates key organs representing distinction. And if this is just a little something extra, then it represents dedication. These are the parts that are burned. They are offered to Hashem, but the other parts are disposed of. I think this represents the unintentional sinner who brings an offering. There is a loss represented by the disposal of much of the body, but that spiritual core of purity, holiness, and dedication or distinction can still be offered up to Hashem. Throughout all these initial offering types, each animal is kept distinct. Even if the offerings are nearly identical, each type of animal has a totally distinct kind of nefesh, of animating soul. By giving each species its own ink, we represent and recognize these distinctions. Now we can come to the next kind of offering, the asham. The asham brings together four different situations. The last three are linked by the sin itself being caused by something being hidden, while the first case is a failure to testify due to an emerita-style oath, which actively hides. All of these speak to the importance of awareness, both in others and ourselves. Earlier, Avraham hides Asara, and Avimelech says, one of my people may have lain with her, and you would have brought upon us asham. It is a sin created through unawareness, either unawareness we enable or unawareness we suffer. Here, the sheep and the goats are mixed. The animal is called Hashem. It literally takes on our unawareness. Looking at these animals, we can see the goat is rambunctious, and the sheep is kept by those who are rambunctious. They share rambunctiousness. But one is an actor, the goat, and one is the enabler, the sheep. The sins of being unaware and enabling unawareness, they're interrelated just as these offerings are. The Asham offerings are tiered by affordability, but only the middle group brings an Olah, a transfer offering. The poor person lacks resources, and so they might resent the Olah. The rich person can choose to bring their own Olah. They are aware of their resources and capabilities. The middle person is required to bring an Olah in order to remind them or make them aware of their spiritual capabilities. The last set of offerings have a variety of infractions, all linked by the offering of a ram. The infractions involve betraying responsibilities to God, committing fraud, or being unaware of the commandments. The ram is brought because it is a symbol of heavenly fear, as captured in the offering of Yitzchak and reflected on in the consecration of the Kohanim. Fear of heaven, not terror, but the realization that we don't every, understand everything, but we should do it anyway, is the backstop that prevents us from these sins. Rather than being a letdown, these offerings re reflect a type of perfection in the Jewish people that mirrors that of Avraham, who was perfected by the Akedah. On one end of the Parsha, the people bring a willing Olah offering because they love heaven, and on the other, they bring a ram because they have learned fear as well. A few years ago, I wrote up a summary of the sacrifices in terms of a relationship. I think it makes things clearer by being a little bit more compact. So here it goes. 
Let's say we've got a guy named Bnei Yisrael. We'll call him Beni Israel. So he lays his eyes on a truly singular Shekhinah. It's got to happen sometime, right? Or at least once. Bear with me. Well, he'll buy that Shekhinah flowers. It isn't exclusive or nothing. It's just an expression of his will. The point isn't that he's rich. The singular Shekhinah is loaded. It's that he's investing in what he hopes will be a beautiful relationship. It's an offering of will, a transfer. That's an Allah offering, an elevation offering to Hashem. It is a male animal because the male represents will in a reproductive sense. The male has a unique power of positive will. Now, Ben Israel might buy this unique Shekhinah a drink, but he's not alone. Allah offerings didn't require an exclusive relationship, but let's say things get more serious. Now he wants to demonstrate not just will, but a level of dedication, refinement, and emotional involvement in their growing relationship. He's laying it on thick. This is a Mincha offering, which is meant to influence. How do you show dedication, refinement, and emotion? Flour, which required a lot of work to make, showed dedication. Oil, which required multiple rounds of purification, showed refinement. And incense, which touches our emotional nerves, demonstrated emotional involvement. Voila! Next thing you know, Beni Israel and the unique Shekhinah are getting engaged. He wants to show he's all in. He's totally dedicated. This is the Zevach Shlamim. The Mizbeach converts the physical into the spiritual. It represents a sort of flowing change. And Shalom doesn't only mean high, it can also mean complete. Zevach Shlamim shows Benny is completely into this relationship. As part of the animal offering, he burns up the kidneys, the liver, and the yoter, representing purification and dedication or distinction. Finally, he burns up the chelev, the fats that sustain the animal in dire emergencies and thus represent its core investment in survival over time. He's really making this connection to the Shechina clear. By the way, this offering doesn't appear until the end of Parshat Mishpatim. It is unique to the Jewish people in their relationship to God. But it does appear before the Mishkan. Okay, so now Beni Israel and the Shekhinah move in together. They build a nice little Mishkan in the desert, but then Beni screws up. So he gives the Shekhinah a gift, a chatat offering. Somehow, through the mystery of relationships, that makes it all better. This kind of thing can only happen when the couple is together. The level of mess-up really demonstrates which gift he gets. Sheep and goats represent rambunctiousness, they're good for individuals. Females are offered because the female represents actualization, not will. Basically, you screwed up, you're rambunctious, I love that word, but you didn't mean to do it. Not really, it's all better now, which is pretty cool. But when a leader of a nation screws up, or the nation as a whole screws up, they bring a bull, representing the nation's will. The whole didn't mean to doesn't apply when you're dealing with the big stuff. Then one time, Benny Israel gets confused, or confuses others, well, that can cause problems. Relationships rely on honesty and clarity. So if you get confused or confuse others, you bring in a Shem offering. You commit to paying attention because the relationship is worth it. Finally, Benny Israel pawns some of the Shekhinah's jewelry to buy himself a watch, which is not a good thing. In return, he has to buy the jewelry back and bring a ram as an offering of fear and submission. You won't do that again, am I right? Looked at in this slide, the offerings from the Olah to the Mincha to the Hasham give us tools to both build and repair our relationship with God. Remarkably, in the Chatat offerings, both can be accomplished at once. I know this was a long podcast, but I hope it was informative. Next week's, due to Pesach preparations, will be much shorter. As Pesach is coming, I want to remind everyone of my extended commentary on the nature of the Exodus, which is, of course, available on my website, josephcox.com. I'm particularly proud of the analysis of the Ten Plagues. As always, feel free to use these ideas as you see fit. There is no need to give credit. Thank you, and Shabbat Shalom.